We've been in our membership service, um, like sermon series, and you know, we do a one-year renewable approach to membership here at Blue Ocean. I just wanted to point out um, that I had a long week last week, so I didn't send out the link again on Friday, so I'm going to do that either today or tomorrow. But if you would like the hard copy form of some of the membership, like core values and parts of who we are, there are a few hard copies that are printed on the book when you come in. And oh my gosh, it's good to see your face. Chris Weislick, I don't know if he's over there. They've had three now, which I didn't realize they'd had three. Hi, Chris Weislick. <laughs> ah, he's, he's busy. All right, so we've been talking about some of our church values, and we've been doing it by looking at Psalm 23. And I think in some ways that psalm is a pretty handy summary of who we are in a nutshell. So I just want to start by reading the first two-thirds of it. So if you picked up the little handout over there, you can follow along. This is the Robert Alter translation. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. In grass meadows they make me lie down, by quiet waters guide me. My life they bring back. The Lord leads me on pathways of justice for their name's sake. Though I walk in the veil of death's shadow, I fear no harm, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, it is they that console me. And so last week we looked at that first bit, right? We talked about that first third. We talked about the importance of rest and of recharging of being the kind of community where people can hopefully learn to trust in the goodness of God, especially if that trust has been lost. And so this week we're going to look at the part when we're going to talk about what it means to be led on pathways of justice for the sake of the name of God. Now, one of my best teachers for understanding the justice lens of the gospel has been the Reverend Howard Thurman. He's a theologian, a pastor, a professor, civil rights leader. He was one of Martin Luther King Jr.'s mentors. Um, he's probably best known for his book, Jesus and the Disinherited. We did a sermon series on this when we first started, like back in 2015 or 16. Um, I thought, gosh, it might be worth doing that again with fresh eyes. Uh, Martin Luther King was said to have carried a copy of this book with him at all times. But this year, I've been looking at a couple of Thurman's other books. He has several on prayer and contemplation and spiritual practices, and just really growing to appreciate how much he understood that contemplation and prayer and rest and nature and community are just integral to the ability to help enact justice, especially at scale. And so I think he really embodies what we were talking about last week, this place of being able to find still waters and restoration and that being a really crucial counterpart to doing this work of repair in the world. So in this book, Jesus and the Disinherited, Reverend Thurman, he essentially says, look, I've heard a million sermons about what the gospel might say to middle-class white people, about how they can help people who have less than them, and there's nothing wrong with that. He said, but I've heard very, very few sermons about what the gospel says to the oppressed themselves. How does the gospel empower the marginalized? How does the gospel help people who have less social power and resources to find dignity and self-worth? What tools are embedded in the gospel that help us change systems that dehumanize people and keep them from being able to, say, eat, or keep them from being treated as social equals? And so he goes on to describe something that we try to say a lot here, and that's emphasizing that the Bible was written by an oppressed people group for the empowerment and dignity of the oppressed. 
And when the Creator chose to come in human form to show us the kind of power that can overturn injustices, that human form was a disinherited, marginalized, poor body. Right? And it wasn't an accident. The Creator chose to take the form of a Jewish man in a time when the Jewish people were being tormented and killed by the Roman Empire. In his life, he was a minority without citizenship rights. He didn't have the rights of Roman citizenship like the Apostle Paul did. And he was part of a tradition that taught him about this God of the oppressed. It was part of how he came to understand his own purpose. And that was important, that context in which he came and which he could learn from. He was also probably poor. Now, I've heard different sermons, like I, we're not actually sure about that much about his childhood. And I've heard some sermons about how, you know, maybe Joseph made some decent money as a carpenter. There was a big city nearby, Sepphoris, that the Romans destroyed, and so a lot of people were needed to rebuild it. But Thurman points out that in the Gospel of Luke, there's a story about how Jesus' parents went to the temple to make an offering after Jesus was born, and they made an offering of two birds. So I'm going to read right from Thurman here. Um, he says, there's recorded in Luke the account of the dedication of Jesus at the temple. And when the days of Mary's purification, according to the law of Moses, were accomplished, they brought him, Jesus, um, to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Uh, I can probably skip some of that. And to offer a sacrifice according to that which is the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. When we examine the regulation in Leviticus, an interesting fact is revealed. Um, it says that you should offer a young pigeon or a turtle dove. And if you're not able to bring a lamb, then you bring turtles or two pigeons. In other words, he says, it's clear from the text that the mother of Jesus was one whose means weren't sufficient for a lamb, who was compelled, therefore, to use doves or young pigeons. And so the economic predicament in which Jesus was identified in birth placed him initially with the great mass of people on earth, and the masses of people are poor. Right? And so the Bible's emphasis is often on a different syllable right, than is sometimes taught. Speaking to the poor, the meek, the peacemakers, the grieving, theirs is the kingdom of God. And so as Christians of all stripes, we're asked to get on board with a me message of empowerment and dignity for the oppressed, and we're compelled to get on board for the sake of the name of God, right? They lead us on those pathways of justice for their name's sake and for the sake of following Jesus, and also because it makes life better for all of us, right? Most people in this world, we kind of want the same things, right? I've been to like 42 countries, I've lived abroad, we just all want to have our same basic needs met. If we're raising kids, we just want to be able to do that in a place that's safe. We want to be able to imagine a future where those kids will also be happy and have their needs met. We'll be able to thrive and grow into all they're supposed to be. Most of us just want a little bit of joy and peace and leisure and to be treated justly by the state systems, right? To have some kind of protection on that level. And the shorthand term for this kind of widespread contentment in the Bible is the kingdom of God. Right? Some parts of the Hebrew Bible call it the shalom peace of God. We sometimes refer to it as the good realm of God. This idea of a just world that Jesus just couldn't stop talking about. That's all it means. It's just a world where everyone is able to just like actually live. 
The kingdom of God is like this. The kingdom of God is like that. And in Jesus' time in particular, people were thirsty for it because their lives had been upended for so long. And so Jesus teaches that the best way of achieving this good life that is shared by as many people as possible where people can thrive is to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. Right? Something he learned from his own tradition in the Torah. Of course, some astute man, I might have a different word for him, but came up and asked Jesus, okay, well, just to clarify, who is my neighbor? Right? Define that. And we know that Jesus then turned around and responded with a story. And he told a story about the Good Samaritan, saying, in effect, our neighbor includes the people that we might not like to associate with. Right? Our neighbor includes everybody. It's not just our in-groups. And in fact, it's the people who aren't our in-groups that this man in that story went and provided medical care for, paid his medical expenses, paid his housing expenses, and took care of him. Right? So by treating all people the way we want to be treated likely means shifts of power and shifts of money. Right? Fairer distribution of resources. Systemic changes. Changes that can threaten certain classes of people. And to get at this, Jesus told a lot of stories, right? As an example of one of those stories, he tells this story about, um, it's called the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. I preached about it in depth, I think, last fall. And in that story, Jesus emphasizes justice over fairness, right? So you've got all these laborers in the story who had been working, and the ones who had been working from the beginning of the day on were more worried about being paid fairly like, hey, I've been working longer, I deserve a lot more, than in whether or not the workers who joined later in the day had a high enough wage to actually feed their families. Right? So sometimes Jesus was more concerned about justice and making sure everybody's basic needs were met than he was concerned about fairness or what people felt like they deserved. And so there were a lot of edges to his teaching, and the Roman Empire certainly heard those edges. They heard the parts that were threatening, and they put him to death for it. But I think there's a certain genius to love your neighbor as yourself, right? It's so simple. It takes what can be, I mean, it's simple and it's not, right? It takes what can be a really overwhelming task, justice in the world, and tries to make it tangible and doable. It localizes it. Right? So the people who are within your sphere of influence, when things are happening within your realm, love your neighbor as yourself. It says, though I walk in the veil of death's shadow, I fear no harm, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, it is they that console me. Right? So God leads us on these pathways of justice out of concern for all humankind. Right? That's the way to peace. And those paths might just lead us into death's shadow. Saying doing the work of justice in the world is not always safe work. God's pathway of justice might take you, say, into a school district that is rampant with systemic injustices. I was kind of hoping Crystal would be here so I could say, can we get an amen? <laughs> it might land you in a company that lacks integrity where you have to speak truth into a system that does not reward that truth. And so I think God's path will lead us at some time or another into a place of hardship in order to help reveal the one who causes death to flee. And Psalm 23 tells us there are two things to remember as we walk pathways of justice. First, it tells us we're not alone. Right? Not only is God with us, but there's also other lovers of justice in those same spaces. No sheep is ever taken out to pasture alone. Right? If nothing else, it's cost prohibitive. Right? <laughs> Those are our sheep farmers. 
If the good shepherd is leading us on these pathways of justice, it is almost certainly not a trail that we are walking on our own. There are other, all kinds of just woolly friends alongside of us. Look at all of us. I mean, I've actually, I think I have wool on right now. We know that sheep form lasting bonds with each other. They come to one another's aid in fights. They grieve when they lose a friend. And so there's camaraderie, and there is care in this picture in Psalm 23 where the sheep are being led around by the shepherd. They're doing it together. The second thing to remember here from the psalm is that God is not only with us, but aids us in those spaces. Right? This is an encouragement. Your rod and your staff, it is they that console me. Right? The rod is like a mace. It's kind of bigger and it's heavier. It's used for fending off you know, bigger animals like lions and bears and wolves. And then we all, know, we all know what a shepherd's staff looks like, right? Like the crook with the great big hook or curve at the end. And that's meant to rescue the sheep who have found themselves, you know, wandering off on the mountain paths, maybe stuck on a steep drop-off who can't make their way back to safety. So it's an encouragement that the Creator is standing and ready to act and in our corner. And as we said last week, that doesn't necessarily mean that everything goes the way that we would hope. It most certainly doesn't. Every day has enough trouble of its own, is what Jesus said. But we're told that God is on the side of love and justice and is like in a ready stance, right? Like if you do martial arts or if you play video games, God's in like the ready stance. There are opposing forces in this world, but we're told that the divine energy is working to empower and then to comfort those who are doing this work of justice. Don't worry, God is with you. I find it helpful to name that as a community, we have had a few years here that have demanded a lot of us in terms of justice work, right? And so I think since we've gotten back to meeting every week, it seems so weird to me. I don't know if you guys still feel this, but COVID feels like it does like a time warp on my brain a little bit about how long things have taken. Sorry, just as I said, time warp is a little brain. I saw Rocky Horror last night with Mike and Molly Morton, and then you know, do the time warp is like a whole dance in that. Sorry, diver- <laughs> a little digression there. It does, it feels like a time warp. I'm like, oh my gosh, have we only been meeting every week for six months? It now feels like it just like never ended. But we have to remember that like we're still in this place of we're just kind of, we're getting ourselves back going. I felt like we needed space to breathe. And that just as a community, we've needed to really just take some time beside still waters and just let the Spirit help return our life to us, right? Getting some of these tools of prayer and contemplation and rest and understanding nature as a space of healing and all of these things that we have in our tradition that can help us. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't do any justice work. I mean, in many ways, I feel like the way that we teach scripture and then just how we do community together here is justice work. I've often thought like our church is a work of justice, trying to do a place of community where we are all accepted and included, which we'll talk about more next week, is actually a work of justice, showing up for each other in that way. We have a few ongoing things. Um, You know, gosh, The size of our church, I would love to do everything, but we have to be a little bit wise about what we can do sustainably and what we can't. And so the constants that we have in our church are the things that we've proven to have ongoing energy for. So one of those is serving food to people who are insecure, food insecure at Hope Clinic every month, which Nancy Broadway leads. Prior to that, Joy um, Lang led that for decades, right? Go and showing up, packing food, sometimes washing dishes. I think Barney and Linda do a lot of the dishwashing, handing out food. 
That's something that we do once a month, showing up at local prides, doing queer advocacy when that's needed here in town. Um, I would now add probably that sustainable climate justice work is happening at the church. Tim Baduva is not here this week, I don't believe, but he came in and has just really been faithful um, about advocating for climate justice and creating different spaces for people to do that. And Caroline's been working with him and what Lisa's been doing and Mike with the gardening team. Um, and so I think that that is sustainable and something that we're doing. Something I think it's helpful for us to know as you know, I've never wanted to own a building, but I'm just one person, right? We are a whole church. It's not just my decision. I like sharing a building and I like doing it in part because I think that it's a good use of resources, right? You might say, oh, renting, you know, it's better to buy. We're able to like put our money in a building that's shared by three people that enables us to have solar panels and a rain garden and to do updates to the building that allow it to be a little bit more sustainable. Um, I can't think of the word that I need, but environmentally more friendly. And I think that that's helpful. And I'm told that there's talks, even in this building, to think about long-term, about climate change and when Michigan could well become a climate refugee haven. And so how might we take in and how might we help people who are transitioning here seeking safety in the decades to come? And so some of these are just sort of the built-in things that are ever-present. But I also really like, as a community, to remain strategically nimble so that we can respond to things as they come up, right? So um, I'm just gonna give us a few examples because I think it's helpful, especially for people who are newer, to get a little bit of a sense of who we are. You know, when things got especially rough for undocumented immigrants a few years ago, some of us, um, I think it was Steve Gray said, you know, we should go down to the courthouse in Detroit and just sit there in some of the different courthouses and bear witness. I think you did that, didn't you, Lisa, too? And just bear witness to the proceeding for people who are seeking asylum and who are systematically being denied refuge. Um, and so I went with my caller. The judge whose courtroom I was in was not that happy I was there, but he did not kick me out. But it was somewhat verifying some of the news reports that were taking place and somewhat just saying, there are people of faith who are watching this and seeing the injustices that are happening. Around that same time, the UCC out in Ypsilanti, they do a lot of work with some of the local undocumented immigrant community. And they said, you know, ICE is busting up a lot of people's families and businesses. They're deporting people um, without any sort of warning or deporting one person, sometimes the breadwinner from a family and not the rest of the family. So I said, we need to have an information meeting at our buildings where people can come and find out what are my rights? What happens if, ISIS comes, or if ICE comes to my door? Did I say ISIS? Oh God, I'm so sorry. ICE is what I meant. Oh, my brain is so tired this week. Sorry. ICE coming to their door. What do we do? And they said, we're worried about this meeting being busted. So they put out a call to a bunch of local, not just churches, but a lot of faith communities and said, come, surround the building. It'll make it less likely that ICE busts us. And also, if they do, there'll be a lot of witnesses. So a bunch of us did that. Um, we did that to re reduce that police raid likelihood. A couple of years, um, I put on my collar and I drove an undocumented immigrant to dialysis every Friday. The Quaker House contacted us and said, we've got a refugee, came here for school, got married, had a couple of kids. Suddenly he's got, he had to drop out of school. He's got a health issue. If he goes home, he will die. He doesn't have access to dialysis. So we're here doing this. 
And so I did that because that way he wouldn't be deported if we got pulled over because there's some weird law where we can claim sanctuary, like if they're with somebody who's a clergy person. So I just had to be with him the entire day and I'd write my sermons from the dialysis center over at St. Joe's. And I didn't talk a lot about that because I didn't want that to get busted. Um, But that's stuff that we do that's sort of unseen, right? Um, When the U.S. pulled out of Afghanistan really quickly during COVID, you know, there was a surge of refugees that came into the county and we were able to say yes to Jewish family services to help resettle a family of six. And many of you were very helpful in that. Diane Sonda did some heroic work. I couldn't even tell you how much she did. We marched in Lansing with our pussy riot hats. We marched in Ann Arbor, <laughs> marched uh, all over with Black Lives Matter. I know that it's not just showing up, but that takes organization. So I had called the Ipsy chapter and they said, we just need you to show up. Detroit chapter said, we need office supplies. So our church provided you know, gift card to like Office Max or something like that. Just saying, what do you need? What do you need? How can we help? When Crystal says, hey, the Ypsilanti school system, there's a lot that's going on here. People were showing up at the board meetings. When the food pantry out there that's run by the Islamic Center, the Jewish um, congregation here, as well as St. Clair, they need, they need food. We try and respond. Right now they need food. So just so you know, we're going to be putting out a, a box. They need more canned goods and dry goods. And so I'm not saying all this to say, like, look how awesome we are, but it's to, like, remind us of who we are. Let newer people understand who we are and then just remind us of why we stay nimble, right? So we've got these constant ministries and then we have some flexibility to respond to our communities when needed. And I think that nimbleness is enabled by rest and seasons of prayer and contemplation and friendships and care. And we're in one of those seasons like, let's breathe a little bit because something will come up. And we do it out of a love for the vision of Jesus, the vision of the Hebrew Bible, a vision that includes a life of thriving for everyone, loving our neighbor as we would want to be treated. And I'd say we do what we can, not what we can't, but we always want our hearts shaped by the good shepherd who is guiding us. So still waters, paths of justice, we need both, they're complementary, and both are necessary in the life of a Christian disciple as well as a Christian community. All right, so with that, we'll have a couple of minutes here. We usually do a minute or two of either quiet or or guided meditation. And you can do what you like, but I would invite you maybe this morning to just spend a little bit of time asking the Spirit to show you, like, what season are you in? Do you need, do you feel like your life needs to be brought back and you need a little bit of still waters? Are you in a season where you're being led on a pathway of justice? Is there something going on in your work life or school life where you feel like the light needs to shine a bit? Maybe you're in a bit of both. You're like, man, I've been doing this, but I'm also tired. So maybe just spend a little bit of time asking the Spirit where you're at and what it is that you need. I'll let you know when the time is up. People make noise. Don't worry about that.
Holy Spirit, I ask that you continue to teach us this balance of rest and rejuvenation, of stillness and quiet, of being refreshed in nature, a finding of our source in the creator and in the divine, and being able to enact your justice in the world, to love our neighbors the best we can, to also live lives of joy and thriving as much as we are able. I ask that you would help us to do this for the sake of your kingdom, of your shalom in this world. I ask that our community would bear witness to that and ways of doing that, that that would be something lasting that we leave here in Washtenaw County and around the country as people are joining us on Zoom. May we be a light. May this be a light that we can pass on to our children and our children's children about how to be in the world. And may your kingdom come, because Lord knows we need it. Amen.